0: He has paid it all, all to him we. Oh, if you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We want to welcome our Lexington campus. So great to have you with us. Those of you online as well, we appreciate you joining us, and we love you over there at Lexington as well as Shelby. We're thankful for you. If you would turn with us to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you, and that's true at every campus, a Bible there that we're going to turn together to page 995. If you're here or there at Lexington without a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church to you. Second uh, Timothy chapter, we're going to be journeying through 2 Timothy over the next few weeks. We're excited about this series that we have called Legacy. We're going to be talking about why that is uh, here this morning. But as you turn there, I wanted to highlight a couple things rather quickly. Uh, first of all, we had a great time our Friday morning. Our team at the City Center launched what we called a pop-up service to really plan the way to have a service at our City Center. Uh, we had over 70 people uh, from our our. Uh, ministry there at the City Center that joined for our worship service there on Friday morning. So we're excited about what God is doing. We can, we can clap for that, ex- celebrate what God is doing there. A lot of life change. Thank you for all of you who have invested not only uh, financially but also time there at our City Center. Appreciate Pastor Jesse, our City Center campus pastor, and Monica, our, our programs director there, doing a great job. And we're excited about the opportunity to reach into uh, kind of the nooks and cranny of our city uh, to really help see our city be the city it needs to be by reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're excited about that. I also wanted to take a moment just to give you a little bit of an update about about my health. I know many of you have asked, and uh, I I thought I'd I'd just share a little bit about where I'm at. Uh, Some of you may not have known, but back in January, I found out that I had a a blood clot in my intestine. It's called a mesenteric blood clot in the portal vein, the main kind of superior vein that runs uh, from the heart to the intestine. So a pretty pretty massive thing, and there's all these kind of uh, little... Uh, capillaries and things and little auxiliary type veins that run through there. And so it was a very touchy thing. I spent five days at Ohio State University Hospital just trying to figure out what caused this. Now uh, this is not a rare thing to have a blood clot but it's pretty rare in someone my age. I'm only 41 years old and for some of you that's young. And for others of you, that's old, but I'm 41 right there in kind of the middle. And, and so for someone my age, it's actually a rare blood clot. Usually you find it in older people, not in people my age. And so the doctors really want to find out what caused this. And so I've been on a journey for the last 10 months, months trying to figure out what caused this blood clot. And uh, there have been tons of tests, a lot of doctors visits. And it was one doctor that uh, I was sent to, decided to test everything he could think of. And so I was going through a, a gambit of blood tests and I ended up testing positive for a rare blood disease. Uh, it's a rare blood disease. Only about 20,000 people have it in the U.S. And, uh, and there's not a lot of information on it. Uh, there's only about 12 doctors in the world that actually deal with this. And so I was sent to Cleveland Clinic where I've been getting help. Now here's what, here's what that means. is I'll have four or five really good days where I feel great 100%. If you were to see me during those days, a lot of times I've tried to work it out where that, that level happens in the weekend. If you were to see me, you see me here, you're like, man, he seems great. And it's true. I'm 100% today. Um, but tomorrow, I could feel sick, run a fever, uh, feel miserable. And so I've been going through this journey of just for every few days start to feel bad and uh, don't sleep, things like that. And so I've had to learn a lot of things as I've been getting tested. Uh, it, there's no cure for this, but there are some treatments I could have. Now it's figuring out what is the right treatment. And so I'm kind of in that medical journal, journey uh, probably in a medical journal as well someday uh, because of this. So uh, this rare thing, we're going to figure out what it is uh, and how it's going to be treated. I have an answer now, but now I have to figure out what the next step is going to be. So I'm going through a lot of testing to figure that out. But i got to tell you, I'm impressed with the Cleveland Clinic. They're an amazing hospital, so thrilled about what they're doing to try to get this thing taken care of. So thank you for your prayers. Can I tell you, I have been sustained because of your prayers. I, I, don't, I cannot underestimate or overestimate how much your prayers have meant. There have been moments where I thought, you know what, I don't know if I can keep up anymore. And uh, maybe I ought to uh, step aside. I've thought about that. And and every time there was a moment where I just felt the strength of your prayers. And so I cannot thank you enough for praying for me. I have felt them, I have endured through them. And so thank you so much for being such a great family uh, to me in the midst of this. And uh, to God be the glory. I've had to learn rest in a way that I've never learned before. Uh, If you know me, I live the way I talk. I run fast, I go hard, I'm quick, and uh, I hate going slow, and so this has taught me to learn just to trust the team we have here. We have an awesome team, uh, and I've had to learn to trust that journey, and so it has been a weird journey for me, um, but God has been faithful. So I want to give you that update. Thank you for your prayers, and uh, I'll keep updating you as we go along, and hopefully we'll find uh, the right treatment that will help me uh, be able to overcome this uh, well. So 2 Timothy chapter one, let's dive in. We're gonna start this series called Legacy. You know, isn't it interesting, uh, that we really don't like to think about the end of things, do we? We don't naturally think about endings. I mean, think about summer. You don't enter summer thinking, well, I can't wait till summer's over. No one does that, right? When summer begins, it's excitement. You don't think about the end. Or, or how about vacation? You never go into vacation thinking, I can't wait till the end of vacation. You never go into spring break, students thinking, I can't wait till the end of spring break. No, you go in thinking about the beginning, but we rarely consider the end. Or think about a movie, right? Maybe there's a movie you want to watch, and certainly the ending we want to see, but we don't go into the movie wanting to hear about the ending, do we? In fact, we can't stand it when somebody tells us the end of the movie before we ever watch the movie we like the beginning. We want to know what's going to take place. We want to wait to see the ending of that movie. And so we don't discuss endings very easily. We can consider death. Many people live their lives not considering that the fate of all of us is death, that all of us, 100% of us, will die lest the Lord return. We will die. All of us have that in common. And yet very few of us actually think about our ending, think about our death. We live in a culture that is hyper-focused on the here and now. Hyper-focused on the today. While all of us have the same fate, we, we, we really only consider what is in front of us, what is happening today. So here we are as seasonal creatures passing through time in a small yet, yet profound season, and we're gonna leave something behind. One day the impact that we leave will be forgotten or it will be felt. All of us here will leave something behind. By by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, you're leaving something behind this morning. Right now, you're gonna leave something behind. Doctors would describe that even physically we leave something behind. Believe it or not, that every person sitting in those chairs, wherever you're sitting, you're gonna leave behind some skin cells. That's kind of weird to think, someone who sat in here in Park Avenue last night, you're sitting on somebody else's skin cells. But it's true. We constantly are leaving something behind physically as well as spiritually, as well as emotionally. We are leaving things behind constantly. And we will leave something behind when our life ends. Now you might be here and you might say, wait a minute, I'm not really worried about my legacy. It's not about me. You're going to leave something behind. It's going to be felt or forgotten. The question is, what are you going to leave behind? For many people, they are too busy trying to survive life They're not considering what it is that they're leaving behind. And the only way we can understand how we leave a legacy is to understand how to live a legacy. Whatever we're going to leave is based upon what we do today. Whatever we're going to leave behind is going to be based upon the decisions and the choices and the, the way that we live our life today. And so legacy is so important because we are choosing today what our legacy will be tomorrow. Whatever that thing we're going to leave behind, whatever that thing that's going to be felt or forgotten, we're going to be making that decision today. And so what does it look like to leave a godly legacy? We're going to look at a book that is actually Paul's dying words. It is the last words of Paul that we find in the scriptures. And he writes them to his young protege, Timothy, his young spiritual son, Timothy. And we get to read these words and glean what does it look like to leave a legacy. Now, here, as we dive into 2 Timothy, let's, let's kind of talk a little bit of background because Paul is going to write to this young pastor, the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the main cities of the Roman Empire. Besides Rome, Ephesus may have been the most prominent city in the Roman Empire. Uh, there's Corinth, which is another prominent city, but, but Ephesus had actually some, uh, some of the temples to the false gods of the Roman worship, and so it was a well-known city. And Timothy was a pastor... Of the church of Ephesus. But the relationship with Paul actually started many years before, decades before. And we find in Acts chapter 16 the moment that Paul meets Timothy. And I want to read this just to set the tone as to why this is a unique book that we're going to read. In Acts chapter 16 we find the meeting of this unique relationship between Paul and Timothy. It says this, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. Now, if you remember, Paul was Saul, If you read his story, remember he was Saul, and he was actually persecuting Christians. We find Saul killing Christians. And then on a road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's there that that Christ transforms him and renames him Paul, and then commissions him to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And so he goes throughout the world, and he preaches the gospel, and he plants churches. So here he is, and he's traveling to Derby and to Lystra. And it says, "...a disciple was there whose name was Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek." Now the implication is, his mother is Jewish and a believer. His father is a Greek, Gentile, and not a believer. So he's in this split family. One a believer, one not. "...he was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places." For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities and they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. Notice, Paul takes Timothy, this young man who had a believing mother but an unbelieving father and says, I want to take you with me on these missionary journeys. Probably at the time, maybe 10 or 11 years old. Many scholars believe no more than probably 15. And now he goes along with Paul who begins to spiritually father him. He saw some gifting in Timothy, and Timothy becomes a missionary with Paul, going throughout the world, planting churches. And eventually, they come to Ephesus, and Paul leaves Timothy as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. There's a deep relationship that Paul has with that church. There's a letter. The letter to the Ephesians is written, and we also find the the letter here to Timothy, where he writes two letters to Timothy to, to, to encourage him in this moment. Now, as we read this letter, we are reading a personal letter but this is not a private letter. It's personal but not private. What do I mean? Go back to chapter four, go to the very end. I wanna show you this because it's important for us as we read this letter to understand the relationship with Timothy, but also that we understand this is meant for you and I as well. Take a look at the end, the very last verse. It says, verse 22, chapter four, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. Do you notice the word you there? Grace be with you. The word you is actually plural. So he writes the letter to Timothy personally, but he actually is meaning it for everybody to hear. It's plural. In fact, if I were to translate this, it would literally be, and grace be with y'all from, from the south. Grace be with you all. It's plural, it's for everybody. You and I, can glean from this personal letter from Paul to Timothy. This is meant for you and I to glean from. By the way, this was true for the church. The church was supposed to read this to get insight into how to live in a difficult time. And so we're gonna look at this very personal letter, but not a private letter. Now before we dive in, you gotta understand what Paul was experiencing. Why was Paul writing this letter? What was the setting by which he was writing this letter to his young protege, his spiritual son, Timothy? Well, Paul was in a very dire situation. If you remember, after Saul became Paul, God changed his name, Paul went and preached the gospel everywhere. When he went and preached the gospel everywhere, we find Paul over and over again being persecuted. Every city Paul went to, he gets kicked out of because he preached the gospel. He didn't do anything illegal. But he preached the gospel, and, and they had an issue with that, and so they would kick him out of the city. Eventually, he found himself under house arrest in Rome. We know this because he writes letters under house arrest. We, we see the book of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. They're called prison epistles. So he writes those letters under house arrest. But something changed. By the way, if you remember Paul, um, this was a description given by Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 11. I love this description of his suffering. It says... I am a better one. He's talking about himself against the religious leaders. I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. The law was you could have 39 lashes. He said, I had that five different times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. By the way, that's not drugs. He was stoned, literally. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger of rivers, dangers of robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Has anybody had a bad week? I mean, this guy was shipwrecked multiple times. He was adrift at sea for two days. He was beaten over five times stone and kicked out of every city he went to all for preaching the gospel. I mean, who here can compare to that? Anybody can write a little journey like that in their life? Now, please, I'm not saying we should downplay our sufferings. In fact, Paul's gonna talk about this in this letter. But Paul was a guy who faced difficult things. But can I tell you, don't miss this. As we journey through 2 Timothy, we're going to find something unique about Paul's sufferings in this moment. Because what happened was, in about 64 AD, this is a little history, but it tells us the context by which Paul is writing. About 64 AD, the emperor changed. It became Emperor Nero. And Nero was the emperor. And he did something very interesting. Nero decided to burn the city of Rome. He burned the city of Rome... And used the burning of Rome to blame Christians. So in order to get Christians to be persecuted, he burns the city of Rome and said it was the Christians that did it. And then he began to publicly declare an onslaught of all Christians. Christianity became the official enemy of the state of Rome under Nero. Nero. And they were subject to public torture and execution. This was the final nail for Paul. Because what they did is they took Paul from under house arrest, where he had freedom to have visitors, he was free to write, and now they put him in what was called a maritime prison. A maritime prison, let me give a paint a picture it was literally like solitary solitary confinement he was put in a hole in the ground and the only access was a a little hole at the top of this this dungeon a little hole where you could drop food in you could drop water in it was the only place where there'd be sunlight and if you wanted to talk to him you had to lay on the ground and speak through the hole that was it it was solitary confinement to the umph degree uh, it, it, many scholars would say it would fill with water during rainy seasons, and the person had to live in that. They had to actually kind of wade in the water. You can imagine the excrement and all of those things, I don't want to get graphic, but you can imagine how filthy and dirty this was. And that was where Paul found himself. It wasn't just under house arrest where there was freedom for visitors, it was now in a hole in the ground with a little teeny hole at the top where if anybody wanted to visit him, they had to come and speak through that hole. It was devastating. In fact, in the, later on in this letter, he's going to say, Timothy, would you have somebody bring my cloak to me? I'm cold. He's going to say, listen, everybody left me. No one's here with me. We're going to find Paul as we journey through this letter describing his situation in a way that he never described his situation before because he knows his death is looming. And so he decides to write to his young protege, Timothy. Why? Think about this for a moment. If, if Paul was suffering because he was proclaiming that Christ suffered, then what does that mean for Timothy? Right? If, if Timothy's spiritual father was in a prison like that, what would be the logical conclusion to Timothy? It would be that I'm going to be thrown into prison. Uh, think, about, think about the message that Timothy was proclaiming. It was a message that said Christ died on the cross. The God of the universe, the innocent one, died on the cross, rose again. Paul, this one who all he did was preach the gospel, he did nothing wrong, nothing illegal, he preached the gospel. And when they made it illegal, he continued to do it, and they threw him in prison. And now Timothy, most likely was overcome with a lot of fear. We know that because we're going to read it here. He was overcome with a lot of fear. Now, you and I may not have those same fears yet, right? We we don't have a fear that we're going to be thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. We also do have fear, Fear has a way of gripping us. Fear has a way of causing us to be paralyzed in our faith. Fear has a way of, of holding us back. I want you to think about the fears that we have. One scholar said there are basically four types of fears. There, there's a fear fear of failure. Why is it that so many people work so hard and work so hard and try to make money and try to be successful? Why is it that parents point their kids to every activity they can get them involved in? Because there's a fear of failure. By the way, nothing wrong with activities, nothing wrong with work, nothing wrong with making money, but why do we stir our hearts in that way so desperately? It's because we want to be successful. We have a fear of failure. There's a fear of the unknown. We don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow, and so for some of us, we have a fear of the unknown, and so we take control of all the things, hoping that we won't be injured or won't be hurt, and so we control every situation. We become control freaks, and it's all based upon a fear of the unknown. For some, it's a fear of rejection. Why is it that we're afraid to live out the gospel? Why is it we're afraid to live out righteousness? Why is it that we're afraid to make the right choices in life? Because we have a fear of rejection. We're afraid of what people are going to think of us. And so for some, there is a fear of rejection. And then lastly, there's a fear of loss. Many people are afraid of what they might lose, and so they grip things tightly. They're afraid that, that this, this income won't come, or this house won't stay, or this car, right? And so we grip things tightly. I want you to think about those four fears. I can guarantee that probably all of our fears fit in at least one of those categories. Maybe, maybe today you have a fear of loss, or a fear of failure, or a fear of rejection, or a fear of the unknown. Can I tell you, this is true about all of those fears. This is the truth. The truth is what fear does is fear makes us commit the things that don't matter. Think about it for a moment. What fear does is fear makes us commit our lives to things that actually aren't true and don't matter. Someone once said that 85% of the things that we fear never come true. But yet we fear them. We're anxiety-filled over them. We worry about them. Fear makes us commit to things that really don't matter. And so Paul here, knowing that the byproduct of his suffering is that Timothy would be afraid, writes this letter. Take a look with me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to see the words of Paul to his protege. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, by the way, notice the intimacy of their relationship, my beloved child, my spiritual child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Here is Paul writing this letter to Timothy who is probably afraid of what is going to happen to him as he sees what's happening to Paul. And I want you to notice how Paul starts. We're going to look at two things right here that come right from the text, two specific points, and then we're going to look at some subpoints. But what we find is we find this confidence in Paul. That's number one, the confidence of Paul. Isn't this a weird way to start a letter to your spiritual son? Like if you're going to write a letter that's personal, like somebody you know, I don't know about you, but you're going to start the letter and say, hey, what's up? Maybe you start the letter and say "Qué pasa?" That's Spanish for "What's up?" "What's happening?" You're gonna start the letter. You're gonna say, "Hey, bro, what's going down?" Maybe even draw out the West Side sign. "Hey, bro, what's going down?" Right? Right? You're gonna write a letter to somebody personal. You're gonna make it a little more. "Hey, man, I'm thinking about you. Missing you. just want..." Or you maybe you'll shorthand it in text form. "Hey." I don't know shorthand, so I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't know where to go to that. Sorry. I failed my boys who tried to teach me this. But you, you're going to write it personally. I, I want you to notice Paul doesn't do that. Why does Paul start this letter to his young protege who he calls his, his, his child, his son, why does he start it so formally? Don't miss this. I think Paul is strategically trying to point something out to Timothy. He's trying to show him something by starting this letter, not with, a, not with an informal greeting to his son, but with a formal greeting of who he is. And I want you to see the confidence of Paul. Paul is sitting in this maritime prison with a hole in the top where air and food is dropped in, and yet he's fully confident. Why? I want you to see this. Take a look at verse 1. He says, Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, before we go any further, it's important to note that this idea of an apostle is very unique to Paul. Apostle is the Greek word apostolos, and it literally means to be sent out. It's a sent out one. And so, in some fashion and form, we all have an apostolic nature to us, meaning that God sends us out as Christians. But... The title of an apostle is only referred to from those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ and commissioned as a sent-out one by Christ Himself. So remember, in in the uh, book of Acts, we have twelve apostles, and then we add Paul. Paul on the road to Damascus had God show up. Jesus showed up and said, "Paul, why are you persecuting me?" And then He says, "I'm going to send you as a messenger to the Gentiles." So Jesus. Personally, commission Paul as an apostle. So, the title apostle, we don't go around calling each other apostles because the title apostle was, was specific to those who were commissioned by Christ personally. Now, you and I certainly have an apostolic nature, meaning we go out and we're sent out like Paul, but we're not like Paul in the sense that Christ didn't formally, in our face, send us out. It wasn't a personal sent out, it was a generic sent out. And so, That's why this idea of an apostle is unique. But I want you to notice what he says. I'm an apostle by the will of God. What is he saying? He's saying that I realize that it is God who is provident, God who is sovereign, that has sent me out. So, what Paul is saying is the journey to become apostle was by God's choosing. It was God who brought me into this ministry. It was God who saved me. It was God who rescued me. It was God then who commissioned me. This was by the will of God. So, if you and I are ever going to endure suffering, we have to have a theology of providence. A theology of sovereignty. Why? Because you are here this morning And if you're a Christian, you were saved this morning by the sovereign hand of God. It was by the will of God that you believed. It was by the will of God that you were brought in. It was by the will of God that you were saved. By the way, this is true, isn't it? All through the scriptures we see this. I I love places like Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 and 9. It says, says, before the foundation of the world, God said Christ was going to come. I remind people of this all the time, that every one of us our sin was future when Christ went on the cross. Some people say, "And I'm just not good enough. There, there's no way God can save me. Wait a minute here. God went to a cross knowing your sin was still yet to come. How loving is that? How gracious is that? See, God is sovereign. And God is sovereign over saving you. Meaning, it, it is his doing to open your eyes, open your hearts, to allow you to see the truth of the gospel. It is by the will of God. No one here can say, it is by my will that I am saved. It is by my choice, my doing, my ability. No one here can say that. It is by the will of God. And so what that means is, if it's by the will of God I'm saved, and it's by the will of God that I'm delivered to Christ's likeness, then it means in suffering, it is by the will of God that I endure. I can't endure in my own ability. I can't endure in my own strength. It is by the will of God. And so Paul here had a theology of providence. He understood the sovereignty of God. But notice what he says next. He says, by the will of God and according to the promise of life, that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, the providence then makes way for life. A promise of life. So Paul says here, I've got the, I understand the will of God brought me to this point, but I also understand the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So God chooses me, God by his will brings me into the relationship with himself, and now it's based upon the promise of God that I can endure because I know that life is waiting at the end. All right, you've heard this before, but. For a Christian, if we die, we gain, right? Paul wrote that to the church of Philippi. In Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What happens all of a sudden, death becomes not something we fear, but a gift. Because now I understand that life is forevermore in him, that I have a promise of life. Here's the point. The point is, confidence in suffering for a Christian comes from a knowledge of God's providence and promises. If you're going to be able to endure with confidence like Paul, you have to understand that God is indeed in control even when it seems like he's not and that his promises remain true, that he is not a promise breaker, but he keeps his promise. So Paul is saying here, the same God that, that brought me into the spiritual journey that took me from spiritual blindness to a preacher of grace is with me in my suffering and I know the same God who promised me life at my salvation will continue to give me life in spite of me dying. So that life continues. So if you're going to endure suffering, you got to you got to have a theology of providence and promise. If you're going to get through the hard things, you, you better know that God is sovereign over your life, that he is in control, that he knows what he's doing, and you better trust the promises of God. This is why it's so important to read the Bible. That's why I love last week's message, the idea of have a plan. You know why? How can we ever endure if we don't understand the sovereign God, which is we read about in the, in the scriptures, how do we know his promises if, yet we, if we don't read about his promises and glean from his promises? And so we need these things in order to endure. In fact, I would dare say to you, if you're not enduring, I bet it's because... You don't understand the sovereignty of God, and you don't understand the promises that God has made about suffering and your life, and the life in Christ Jesus. I, I read this. I'm reminded of the other week, a um, couple of my boys and I, um, boys talked me in and said, hey, Dad, let's go, let's go up to Cedar Point. And, and so we took a trip to Cedar Point. They got a great deal this year, 150 years, or 50 years? 50 years, not 150 years. That'd be amazing to have roller coasters, 150 years old, 50 years. And... Uh, I think it was. I think it's something like that, and and we so we went up there, and it was a good time. And uh, we're at we're on this, in this line, and you know what I love about that. You're kind of waiting in line. is part of the part of the, the journey is the fellowship you get waiting in line, and then you get up to the kind of the railing to get on the coaster, and you get to watch everybody else go through and come back and then they get off. And so we were watching, and right in front of us was this, this family. And they had this, this little guy, He's I would say maybe seven, maybe six, I'm not sure, but he was, he was decently tall, maybe eight. And they were getting him on this roller coaster, and you could tell as he was getting on, he was scared to death. I mean, he was just like, I don't know if I can do this, I don't know if I can do this. And, and the mom was with him, and mom said, hey, it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be awesome, it's gonna be fun, we're gonna have a blast. And he goes, like, okay. And then he gets on there, and you can tell, I mean, he's just, he had, the ride hasn't even started yet. He's gripping the sides And then they go through and they come back after the ride. And I'm telling you, this kid's face was like this. I mean, he was just fear stricken. And I couldn't help kind of watching this and chuckling because I've been there before as a parent. And I saw his face. And his mom looks over to him and goes, Wasn't that awesome? And you could, this is his expression. It was fear. And then it was like, Yeah, 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 it was fun. It was fun. Can we do it again? And when I, when I thought about that, I thought about this passage. Because what happens, all of a sudden, he became acutely aware that the ride was indeed safe and that there was a good time in the midst of it. Now, he was still holding on for dear life, but what happened at the end, he was like, I got it! We can do it again! It's okay! All of a sudden, he realized that this machine was not going to fall off the tracks. The fear he had at the beginning was swallowed up with the confidence he had after he rode the ride. That's, that's the picture here, right? When we know what Christ has done, when we know who he is, we can endure, we can get through. It's not going to always be an easy ride. It's, at times it's going to leave us like fearful, but we know who God is. Now, Paul, using that confidence then as an example, turns to Timothy. Number two, the charge of Timothy. And notice, by the way, the words of Paul to his son. I love this. He says, I thank God in my service, as, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. And notice these words, as I remember you constantly. Verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you. Verse 5, I am reminded. Notice the word remember and remind it three times repeated. Paul here has a lot of time in the prison cell, and he's pondering his young son, Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, I want to charge you. I remember some things. I've lived this life. I, I'm about ready to die, but I want you to know. I want you to know some things that are important. And what he does is he charges Timothy by remembering a couple things. First of all, he says, Timothy, remember how your story began. Notice verse four. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Why? For I am reminded of your sincere faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. He says, Timothy, remember where your story began. He says, Timothy, I see two things about your story. First of all, it began with a sincere faith. Sincere faith. Your story began with the sincerity of faith. Isn't that true in our spiritual journeys? By the way, the word sincere here is the Greek word hypocrite. It's negative. It's a hypocrite. It literally means not a hypocrite. He says, your faith didn't start hypocritically. By the way, isn't it true all of our faith starts, not hypocritically, our faith starts with sincerity. Isn't it true that we begin the journey with Christ by laying out our hands and saying, God, I can't do this. If you don't do that, you don't come to faith in Christ. Why would you? We come to faith in Christ with sincerity. We don't come with with a mask on. We come with the mask off and we say, God, I can't do this. I cannot save myself. I need salvation. Would you save me? All of us begin that journey the same way. We begin the journey with sincere faith. And so he says, Timothy, don't be a hypocrite. Don't, don't turn away from the sincerity of your faith. This is how all faith begins with Christ. It begins by realizing you can't do it. Your faith was sincere. I'm reminding you of the sincerity of your faith, the mask that came off when you came to Jesus Christ. And then secondly, I'm reminding you of your genuine legacy. You and I need to remember our story. If we're going to endure difficulty, if we're going to overcome fear, we've got to remember the genuine legacy that was painted for us. Notice he says, it began in your grandmother Lois and and your mother Eunice. He says, listen, your faith was not your own. Your faith came from other people. By the way, this is true of us. The, The mode of the message of God, the message of the gospel, always comes through people. God uses people to impact us. For some, maybe it was your parents. For others, maybe it was a grandparent. For some of us it was a friend who cared about us and invited us. For others maybe it was just you happened to come to church but you were invited into a relationship with Jesus Christ. For many I know have a story of that at Crossroads. Over the decades where Christ saved you through the mission here. Think about that for a moment. All of us have someone who left a legacy so that you and I would know the faith. We all have someone who invested in our faith to bring us to faith. So he says, Timothy, remember your story. It was with sincerity of faith and a genuineness of, of legacy that you are where you are today. This was not on your own. There were people before you that laid this groundwork, who were not ashamed to share the gospel with you. I, I, when I read this, I think about my own mother. I, I, you've heard me tell the story before, but I remember as a it was about a 13, or 14 year old teenager walking by. Uh, my, my mother, mother's bedroom I re- grew up in a, a row house in the city and so it was pretty tight and so we, we had this the one bathroom and that bathroom was right next to my mom's bedroom and so in order to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night I would walk by her bedroom it was about 1130 midnight and I was going to the bathroom and I overheard a noise coming from her bedroom so I stopped and I listened and I remember hearing my mom pray and it was I remember it literally li- these are the words verbatim she said these words she says God I don't know what to do with them but he's yours. Now, I don't know if she said that because I was passing through and she wanted me to hear her say, I don't know what to do with you because there was a reason she said, I don't know what to do with him. But then she said, God, he's yours. And I remember as a a 12 to 13, maybe 14-year-old teenager, hearing that line and thinking, wow, my mom is giving me to God. I, my faith today was not given to me by my, myself. It was brought to me by somebody else. God used somebody else to bring it to me. For you, well, who is that mentor? Who is that person in your life that brought faith to you? They were not ashamed. They were not afraid. They came to you. For, for Timothy, there was Paul. For, for Timothy, there was his mother and grandmother. It was Paul in his life. There was a mentor. There's a genuine legacy. That's part of his story. And then this leads Paul to say this. Notice verse six, for this reason. So based upon your sincere faith, based upon your genuine legacy, notice what he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Number two, we rekindle God's gift. If you are going to live a fearless life, you need to rekindle God's gift. He calls him to rekindle the gift of God in him. Now, this is true, right? Our normal reaction would be to to kind of fade away in suffering. But here, Paul says, don't fade away, go forward. Don't fade back, rekindle the flame of the gift of God. Now, when we talk about gift of God, there's some debate as to what this gift is. Um, some believe, was well, this the gift of salvation? Others, is this the gift of him being a preacher-teacher? I think it's actually the latter, that he, the gift of being a preacher-teacher. The reason is in 1 Timothy, he says, remember when we laid hands on you and called you into ministry. However, here's the point. The point is, a believer's divine giftedness is inseparable from divine calling meaning if you are a believer if you have followed Jesus Christ you've been called out into a relationship with Christ you have then been given a gift so these two things are inseparable grace is a divine enablement when you get grace you get gift that gift of salvation leads to the gift of a calling so everybody here has a gift if you're a follower of Christ here in election, if you're a follower of Christ, you have a spiritual gift given to you. And the purpose of that gift is to give you what you need to do what God desires. So that means the gift is not based upon your adequacy. The gift is not based upon your ability. Some would say, well Dave, listen, I'm not a, I'm not a teacher. Trust me, I'm not a singer. You don't want me singing. But some of you, God's given you the gift of mercy. God's given you the gift of administration. God's given you the gift of leadership. God's given you the gift of encouragement. God's given you the gift of generosity. God's given these gifts. And the reason he gives the gifts is not based upon you. He's given the gifts to you based upon what he needs done for him. And so he gifts us so he can accomplish what he desires in the body of Christ, in the church, and for his kingdom. So notice Paul says, fan the flame what I love here is he calls the gift a fire. This illustration makes sense, right? Because God's built some things into nature, right? Animals go into hibernation, fruit trees go dormant, volcanoes go inactive, but they don't stay that way, do they? There are seasons and times where that gift is not utilized to the fullest degree it should be, but it doesn't stay that way. It's dangerous to stay in that state, isn't it? It's dangerous to stay dormant. So what does he say? He says. Listen, don't let things come in and rob the gift from you. He says, keep the fire alive. By the way, that's a Greek word here, anaspero. It means to keep the fire going. It's like you're out camping. And when you're out camping, what's the most important thing to do in a cold, brisk evening? It's to keep that fire stoked, to keep the fire going. If you ever watched that show Survivor, what is the one thing that all of them want? They want fire. Why? Because with fire you survive. Keep the fire going. You never want to lose a fire. What does he say? He says keep the flame going. Rekindle the gift of God in you. If you're going to be a follower of Christ who does not fear, you're going to have to cultivate God's empowering gifts every day, continually cultivate what God has given you for his glory. It needs continual rekindling. Let me ask you here this morning, let me ask you, what are the areas in your life that need rekindled? What are the areas where maybe fear has taken over? And by the way, here's what happens. Fear takes over, and all of a sudden, that, that fire of our gifts begins to fan out. And can I tell you a little truth? Is that when that begins to happen, we begin to blame everything else. Well, it's that job, I'm just too busy. Well, it, it's that event, it's, it's my kid's schedule. Oh, it, it's the church's fault, right? Now, all of a sudden, we begin to blame everybody else. This is what happens, this is how Satan works. And so, all of a sudden, the, the fire of our gifting begins to kind of fan out, and we begin to make excuses. And maybe this morning, like Paul writes to Timothy, God is speaking to you and says, you need to rekindle that flame. That flame of the gift that God has given you is meant to be used, not to be sitting, soaking, and souring. And God is saying today, you need to rekindle something in you. You need to rekindle. You need to to allow Him to rekindle the flame of His gift. That gift is not about your adequacy. That gift is not meant for you. It is meant for the health of the body of Christ and for the good of the kingdom. Use it. Do it. Serve it. If you're here and you say, man, I don't know. I don't have that much gift. No, no. We need you to use it. Get, Get in the game. Use that gift. What areas do you need rekindled? And then lastly, the third observation that He charges Timothy with He says, resist a spirit of fear. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. This word fear here is not a fear that's healthy, like a fear of spiders or a fear of hot water under a scalding bucket. No, no, no. This fear is actually cowardice, timidity. It's the idea that we're hesitant about something and we're we're cowardly about it. It's, It's the word cowardly. Remember I said there are four fears that we experience, right? The fear of loss, fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of the unknown. This is what happens. Fear creeps in, and it begins to deceive us. It begins to depress us, and then eventually it becomes destructive in our lives. It starves out our faith, and it feeds on doubt. And all of a sudden, fear begins to take hold. And what what slowly begins to take place is fear will corrode our confidence in God's providence and God's promise. Why did Paul start the letter the way he did? Because what fear does is fear causes us to question whether God is in control his sovereignty. Fear slowly begins to think that those promises aren't really going to be kept. Isn't that true? Fear attacks the character of God. And so he says, Timothy, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. This idea of fear doesn't come from God. Think about that for a moment. I love this picture. Fear that can manipulate our legacy. Fear that can leave a legacy that will not be what God desires. It will manipulate the legacy or it will define the legacy that we never wanted to have. Fear keeps us us from doing what God wants. So what does he say? I love the fact that Paul says, God doesn't give you that. God doesn't give you that that spirit of fear. That doesn't come from God. I love the fact that what Paul does is he says, if you're going to defeat your fear, you have to define your fear. And what you have to know is that fear doesn't come from God. That type of fear does not come from God. Instead, God gives something different. In fact, I love the word does not give. It's in the Greek, it's in the aorist tense. I know you might be, well, that's all Greek to me. What does that mean? It is literally an aorist active, which means it's a past completed action with continuing results. It was completed in the past. God did not give us this. Instead, he has given us this in the past, power, love, and a sound mind. And he gives us that in the past that now has continuing resources in the future. Notice he doesn't give us fear. He gives us power to endure. He gives us love. By the way, isn't love the opposite of fear? Fear. Why? Because in love there's trust. God, I love you. I trust you. God, you love me. You're now entrusting me with the gift. Fear is the opposite of love. And then he says of a sound mind, a mind that is steadied on the purpose of God, a mind that doesn't fear the something more than it trusts God's ability to work. Let me ask you this morning, where has fear gripped your heart? Where is fear holding you back? Where is fear causing that flame to flare out and God is saying rekindle it. You know, I was reading this passage and I couldn't help but think of a story about a woman named Florence Chadwick. If you like history, you probably have heard of her. She was the first woman to swim across the English Channel. Back in the 1950s, uh, she swam across the English Channel but then she wanted a, a little bit greater feat. It was a feat that no one was really trying at the time and she decided to swim from the Catalina Islands off the coast of California to the coast of California. It was 26 miles of swim. Pretty, pretty significant when you think a marathon is 26.2 miles. This was a length of a marathon in water. And so one crisp, cool morning in 1952, with a group of boats that would follow her and trail her because of the fear of sharks, it was a greatly shark-infested place, she began to swim. And one of the boats that was with her was her mom. Her mom was a motivation. Her mom was a warrior. And so she wanted her mom to be there to watch this event. And so she began her 26-mile swim from the Catalina Islands to the coast of California. About 15 miles into this swim, she, she realized, um, not 15, about 15 hours into the swim, she realized that there was dense fog that was starting to cover over the fog was growing pretty thick and eventually she couldn't even see the boats that were next to her, protecting her. She couldn't even see them and so she yelled out and said hey I I need to end, I can't see. And it was her mom who yelled out and said no no Florence keep going, you got this, keep going. And she heard the voice of her mom and she kept going. She ended up going for another about two hours, 17 hours into the trip. And the fog was so dense like she could not even see a foot in front of her. She couldn't see where she was going. And for fear, she stopped and she said, hey, I got to get out of this boat. And so the men of the boat dragged her into the boat. And as she got in and they steered forward to the coast of California, she found out that she was literally a half mile away from finishing. A half mile away from swimming 26 miles. Can I tell you, there are times in life where the fog of fear begins to overwhelm. fog of fear begins to creep in. Where the fog of of, of the unknown, the fog of loss, the fog of rejection, the fog of of maybe fear of failure begins to creep in. And what Paul is writing to Timothy is, listen, don't give up. Keep going. Don't quit. You're almost there. Keep rolling. That's That's what Paul's saying here. God doesn't give a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Don't don't fear, fan the gift of God. Now's the time not to give up, but to give give forward, get going. And so he says, fan the flame. Don't give up, you're almost there. And maybe for you, God is saying, don't give up. Don't wave the flag, keep going. Yes, it's hard, yes, it's it's difficult. Yes, suffering is happening. Don't give up, don't give in. Fan the flame of the gift of God that he's working in you. Would you stand with me as we pray? We're going to pray. We're going to sing this song that God can do it again. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. You're not in that relationship with Him. And today, by His sovereign plan, He wants to save you. And Today would be the day that He's going to open your eyes, open your hearts, and He's going to save you and bring you into a life, a life of promise in Himself, that He died for you and rose again for you, and now He gives you life. You can trust Him. Life eternal. Maybe today you're a believer and you're walking through some difficult seasons and you're, you're facing fear. Could there be a day that fear is set aside for you to find that fear and say, God, this is not from you. This is not a fear that comes from you. You've given me, you've given me power. You've given me, that, by the way, that word dynamite. You've given, me, you've, given me, you've given me love, the opposite of fear, trust. You've given me a sound mind where, where I'm unsteadied, I can have a sound mind. And so I can rekindle the flame of the gift of God in me. God, I want to thank you for this reminder. God, I know I need it. So often it would be easy to throw on the towel and say it's done. So easy it would be to give up in the, in the dense fog of the culture around us to say, well, I just can't go on, I'm done. But know, God, you who are faithful, you are faithful to your word, you are provident and promising, you who came and died on that cross and rose again, we can trust you. And God, even in this world, if, if we suffer and we die, Lord, we gain, we win. And so, God, may we keep going. May we not give up. May we rekindle the flame of your gift in us. So God, do that work in us again, whatever it is that you need to do. Touch our lives in those areas maybe, maybe we're falling behind. Rekindle it. Fire it up. God, in those areas that maybe we're, we're afraid to find that fear, remind us of who you are. You're a sovereign God and a faithful God. God, the cross is all that we have to look at to know that. The resurrection is all we have to remember to remember that. All for your name, Jesus Christ. Do it again. Amen.